Welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. This episode is part of a series of programs in partnership with the Memorial University graduate course Folk 6740, Public Folklore, and the Craft Council of Newfoundland and Labrador. To document craft traditions in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, my name is Joey Donnelly. And joining us today is Anne Manuel, former Executive Director of the Craft Council of Newfoundland and Labrador. She retired in December 2016 after an impressive and distinguished career. Born at Grace General Hospital and grew up in St. John's and graduated with a Bachelor's in English at Memorial in 1977. She's married, has a daughter and two grandchildren. In 2017, at the 12th Annual Excellence in Visual Arts Awards, Anne won the Keep a Goins Award, so named for the small pieces of wood one throws on the fire to sustain and build the visual arts sector. All right, well, welcome to Living Heritage. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. So, Anne, I'd really like to know how you got interested in craft uh, to begin with. Well, like many uh, people of my generation, I was taught to knit when I was in grade three. It was a required school activity. But uh, I didn't really do anything with it until I was in my 20s, I suppose, when I probably knit myself another sweater. But that was kind of the home side. On the professional side, um, all my working life had been working, up to that point, had been working with various not-for-profit organizations. I had gotten married. My husband had decided to make a stool for the daughter of a friend for a birthday present. And uh, several people said, my, that's lovely. You could make those to sell. And he thought that might be something he could do and would be interested in. And so we visited craft fairs and talked to other craftspeople about what were the possibilities and the opportunities. And in particular, we talked to a young man who was making wooden toys and who was prepared to leave the province and said there's a fair market for wooden toys why don't you try that and so we said well now that sounds like a good idea and so we did we borrowed a table saw we were living in my mother's house at the time so we moved over her hens and chickens and goats in the barn and made space and started making wooden toys went to our first craft fair in 1977 sold trucks and cars and planes and what have you and it was great. It was great. We spent uh, the next three years expanding the business. We moved the chickens to another building and uh, uh, bought some equipment and bought some wood. And the next thing you know, we're wholesaling our work across Canada and selling at retail craft fairs here and in Toronto and in Halifax. And um, it was our business, our livelihood. But it was his business, really, and I was the assistant. I sanded where I was told to sand, and, and that was satisfying to a point, but really I needed to do something else. And the job with the what was then at the Newfoundland and Labrador Crafts Development Association came along, and I applied for that and got it. So I started working with the NLCDA, as it was then, in 1983. What were some of the goals uh, for your organization at that time? It was a fairly small organization. We um, uh, ran a major retail craft fair twice a year then, one in the summer and one in November. 
Uh, we had a small scholarship program. We had a fairly well-established jurying system, which meant a focus on high quality, excellence in craft, and, and uh, a volunteer body that met regularly to view samples and offer critiques and offer assistance to other craftspeople. So that was a very, that's kind of like a founding principle of the organization. Um, so those were the things that were happening. We had a regular newsletter, went out every two months, I guess, and a library and what we called a yarn bank. We would, uh, a lot of knitters uh, couldn't afford to buy big quantities of yarn at wholesale prices, so we used to bring in uh, wool at wholesale prices and resell it to knitters, so we had a yarn bank. Hmm. Um, but in after I'd been there for a couple of years, we had a planning session, a retreat. We went off in the wood with 40 members and, and sat around and talked about what were our dreams for the future of the craft industry and the craft association and came back with a main goal of acquiring our own building. We could see that craftspeople, professional craftspeople would appear in November and set up booths at the, at a, at the stadium at the time and um, sell their work and then they would disappear into their homes and studios and nobody would think much about them until the next Christmas. And we thought that it needed uh, a public, permanent place in the community where we would be visible and um, accessible right through the year. So we needed a building of our own to do that. We also wanted a building to have our own gallery. There was a big craft exhibition traveling the country just previous to that time, and it did not come to Newfoundland because there was no gallery here for it to be shown in. And so we thought that was not good enough. We would have our own gallery, and then when big national craft exhibitions were traveling, we could see it too. And we also wanted, we were thinking of the long term in the future and thought that if we had a a building where we could uh, carry out activity that would generate revenue that would help to support the organization, then that not only would it help us immediately in... uh, expanding our programming but it would take us into the long term when perhaps government funds would not be as readily available as they were at the time. So how did you come to discover Devon House and Duckworth? So once we had once we had the uh, idea that this was what we wanted to do then we started looking around for a place to move to and a uh, and money to buy it with. Uh, there was a federal provincial craft program at the time that supported the industry, but of course it said nothing about buying buildings. <laughs> uh, so we convinced them that the next time they wrote the criteria that they should include funds for craft centers. And so they did. And then uh, once it was seen as a legitimate reason for spending government funds, then it became much easier to access funds from a variety of sources. So at the same time as we were looking for funds, we were looking for a space. And we looked at several spaces, mostly in the downtown St. John's area, and they ranged from old schools and old um, previous community centers of one sort and another. And then Devon House came on the market, and it just seemed to be what we needed. It was on the road to Signal Hill, so it was a, you know, a tourist drive-by. It had a heritage flavor, so it, it was reminiscent of the traditions that craft had arisen from. 
and it was big. It had 8,000 square feet, and previously we'd lived in an office that was not much bigger than this room and had, you know, 800 square feet or something. So <laughs> it had lots of room for lots of activity. And it certainly was a well-known presence in the community. Yeah, and in December of 91, you presented your first show. Uh, That's right. Tell, tell me about that. So it was called All That Wonderful Stuff. And that came from discussions that we'd been having in the year or so before that as we worked with industry partners at in education and training in the provincial government and with other industry partners. We were developing a strategy for uh, the development of the industry. And one of the phrases that kept being said was, and, and she makes this and she makes that and all that wonderful stuff that's, you know, it just came up so often in conversation that it just seemed like a natural for our first exhibition. It was not all that easy to gather the work together. We did have to go individually to many craftspeople one at a time and visit their studios and visit their booths at craft fairs and say, that piece would be wonderful, and will you make such and such for the exhibition? And so it, it, was, it took a little convincing that for people to feel enough self-confidence that, to think that their work was worthy of a gallery atmosphere. Uh, and a gallery environment. But they did, and we opened our first show. After, it took us six months to put it together, and we opened it on December the 8th of 91, and then um, and that was the opening, the grand opening of the building at the same time. Uh, that was quite the day. That was quite the day. The premier was there, which was uh, Mr. Clyde Wells, and uh, Mr. John Crosby was there representing the federal government, and Mayor at the time Shani Duff was there, and we had uh, we had a grand opening ceremony. And it's it's a four story building. <clears throat> we had painted the inside completely, uh, but for the opening, we took everything that we owned, all the files and the desks and the furniture and the chairs, and shoved them all into one room and locked the door. And the rest of the building, except for the gallery was empty and clean and white and just to say here is like an empty canvas we're ready to fill it up with all that wonderful stuff right through the whole building and the programming and things that were to come so it, w it was a very exciting day I still remember it quite fondly <laughs> mm -hmm. oh yeah Let, let's talk about Labrador uh, it's, it's in the name yeah so when the Newfoundland and Labrador Crafts Development Association was formed in the 1970s, at the same time or just a little after, the Labrador Craft Producers Association was formed, and they were two sister organizations. Um, and even though the Newfoundland and Labrador Crafts Development Association had Labrador in its name, uh, the LCPA took on a much more hands-on role in Labrador. There were little individual craft councils in many of the coastal communities, and they each sent representatives together once a year for an annual meeting and craft sale and, and to plan what needed to happen in Labrador for the development of craft there. And because that organization worked so well, there was not much need for the NLCDA to do a lot of hand-on work in Labrador. I did go to those meetings, and we were represented by Labrador on our board, and we still are. 
Um, and one of the pr my prime goals in the early days was to encourage the LCPA to bring work from Labrador craftspeople to the Craft Council's Big Craft Fair in November because I wanted the rest of the world and the, certainly the rest of the province to see the fine work that was made in Labrador. So that happened for many years. Um, but after a while, the LCPA, um, it ceased to exist. There were all demands that uh, the group couldn't meet. Uh, expenses were high, and while there were some grants available, like travel in Labrador is really expensive and everything costs much more, so it wasn't enough to maintain the level of programming that craftspeople wanted. And I think the people that were running the organization found it hard to maintain that level of activity, you know, and it's a small group that you're working with. On the island, we had a bigger access to a larger group of volunteers, and so it just seemed that uh, the LCPA had trouble continuing. So then the NLCDA, or the Craft Council, as we were then called, uh, took on the responsibility of increasing its level of service to craftspeople in Labrador. So we talked to many craftspeople and to the resource people that were there and to teachers and workshop leaders and so on, and arrived at the idea of running the Labrador Craft Marketing Agency, is what it was called. And it was an organization that uh, juried fine craft for excellence in quality, which there is no problem getting in Labrador. Very fine quality work. Um, and then buying it from craftspeople and then reselling it either at retail craft fairs here or wholesale across the country. And we did that for over 10 years, 15 years maybe, and it was quite successful for a time, for a time. But I think that it didn't change enough to keep up with the times. It was what craftspeople felt that they needed when it was started, but there wasn't sufficient attention paid to making sure that it was still what they wanted. And so eventually there were fewer and fewer craftspeople that took advantage of the service and then it had to close because it just wasn't financially viable. So since that time, so I think that might have closed in maybe 2012, maybe around there sometime. Since that time, there's been some extensive research done on what is it that craftspeople need in the region, and there has been a ground-level upgrowth of people who are coming forward to say that craftspeople need better access to mater raw materials, they need training in this, that, and business skills and design skills, they need um, some short-term financing perhaps to help get their initiative started, in various things that they needed. And so now there is a new organization growing up in Labrador to support craftspeople there and uh, working in partnership with the Craft Council to help get the funds in place that they need to continue. So we'll see where it goes, but there's certainly a, a growing strength that had had disappeared for quite a while. Yeah, it's it's hard being a craftsperson. It's hard being a craftsperson in Newfoundland because you're a long way away from the central market. But that's even harder from La for Labrador because you're that much more at a distance. But still, uh, the problem with the craft industry in Labrador 
is the same as it is in Newfoundland, and it's the same now as it was 35 years ago, 40 years ago, and that is that there is not enough product. Mm. There's not enough of the product that the market wants to buy to keep the market happy. So there's boundless opportunity, limitless opportunity, that... uh, um, that needs more people and more energy and more ideas and and for and there is the opportunity for that to succeed you know overcoming these uh, challenges like you were saying in remote communities or rural areas must be difficult combined with maintaining uh, a lot of these traditions the knowledge and the intangible cultural heritage that's out there mm-hmm. uh in, in your point of view, what are some of the best ways to safeguard these traditions? Yeah, that, that's not a, that's not an easy question to answer because, of course, it takes lots of time and money to do that. But it is certainly a necessary thing to do. Craft, even contemporary craft, is based in the traditional techniques and the materials and the designs that have that have been part of. Like they're inbred, like. You don't know, like if you're a Newfoundlander, everybody knows the words to "he'll retin, he'll will retin, he'll retin." But yeah. where did we learn it? Like you don't ever learn it; you just know it. <laughs> um, but the traditional craft skills, especially in Labrador, are in much danger, and there are w- things that can be done. For example, here on the island, mat hooking is a strong traditional Newfoundland skill, but for a while there were not many mat hookers around and you know, it was vi- quickly disappearing in fact and a group of dedicated mat hookers in central Newfoundland um, started a guild the Newfoundland and Labrador Rock Hookers Guild and now today they have hundreds of members they have annual summer camps that lots of people come to they have lots of workshops and, lo- and exhibitions regularly and there's a whole revived interest so it often needs a champion or a small core group of champions to say that this is important to us and we're going to do the work to make it happen. That's one thing that could happen. Uh, There are still uh, living several craftspeople in Labrador that I would recognize as masters, as people whose skills have reached the epitome of excellence in technique and knowledge of traditional design. And I think it's really important to capture those people and their skills before they're gone. Skills um, that could be captured through written documentation, photography, video, one-on-one learning with especially young people who are interested in learning those skills and carrying them forward whether they're for professional use or for their own home use is less important so long as the skills continue and uh, well the craft council has also had some incredible partnerships and and projects when it comes to uh, the anna templeton center and uh, the kitty plantation uh, if you could just briefly maybe t- t- touch sure. on some of those. Sure. Well, certainly partnerships are really important to the success of craft in this province. And the core, the three pillars that we have always said are the industry itself, represented by the Craft Council, the provincial government, and the training institution, the provincial community college. Between or among the three of us, uh, we have built many projects over the years. Uh, the Anna Templeton Center was one of them, and that's got an interesting history. It was um, a, 
the Newfoundland Savings Bank in 1850. It was the Bank of Montreal in 1990. Then the uh, Bank of Montreal built a new building, gave their building to the city, and the city sent out a call uh, for who wanted to take it on, renovate it, and make good use of it. And the Avalon Community College accepted the challenge to turn that space into dedicated studio space for the textile studies program. It's a two-year diploma program at the college. They used workers in their electricians program, in their carpentry programs, and other trades programs at the college to actually do the work, supervised, of course. And in, uh, I think, 92, the program opened uh, in that space. Uh, fabulous space, dedicated weaving studio, dye studio, you know, just really wonderful. Uh, but then two years later, the college decided it couldn't have a downtown campus anymore and wanted to move the program to one of its other buildings on the periphery of St. John's. And the community was really upset by this because downtown in an arts community is a really important place for the textiles program to be. So the Craft Council took on responsibility for the program and got the uh, convinced the Board of Governors that if they would leave the program in the building, the Craft Council would look after the building. So it's it's really quite a symbiotic relationship where the Craft Council made use of the space and the equipment in the evenings and on weekends and in the summer times to offer recreational classes to the general public, all ages, all kinds of medias, mediums, uh, and then the regular students use the, pro- use the equipment space in the daytimes during school hours. And after about 10 years, it seemed like the, the project that was the Anna Templeton Center had grown in sufficient strength to be able to manage its own finances and its own future. And so the, the project of the Craft Council was kind of weaned, if you like, set up its own bank account, got its own employer number, separately incorporated, got its own charitable status, and now it's an independent organization. But the Craft Council maintains a seat on the board because it's important to us that that building and program is strong so that the textiles program can stay there and continue to be strong because that professional training is essential to a strong professional industry. So that was in, like, that's been going along then for several years. And then one day, somebody from the city phoned the Craft Council and said, we have this space in Kitty Vitty and we're looking for ideas for good programming that might suit the environment and suit the the special requirements of living and working in Kitty Vitty Village and did we have any ideas? So we immediately came up with the idea of a craft incubator where the public could come and visit working craftspeople and learn about their ideas and their tools, their techniques, their inspirations and their products, hopefully buy from them. And at the same time, we could offer those emerging craftspeople in their studios uh, support in building their businesses and workshops in everything from how to do your taxes to how to price your work, where, how to market your work, and so on. So that's what's happened. That opened on the 12th uh, on, in 2012. So it's coming close to its sixth birthday now. We have 10 studios with 10 working emerging craftspeople. We've been through, I think, 26 craftspeople have moved in. 
almost 20 have moved out. <laughs> uh, and the, many of those have set up businesses, some in St. John's, some uh, have moved outside the city. There's one in Brigus with a studio storefront house, moved there, family and all. Another one, two, in Bonavista with studios and storefronts and big business ideas. Another one has gone home to our home community of Twillingate, uh, has a gallery, bed and breakfast, and coffee shop there with, you know, selling her work. And and then there are many in St. John's that have studios where you can go and meet with them and buy their work. And it, it's been quite a success. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't fraught with new challenges <laughs> and six years it, it was it's a brand new program it's something like Harbourfront in Toronto where the public can watch people work but they do not have the individual studios that we have and it's it, in many ways it's it's different from you there's no the public can watch but the public doesn't interact with the craftspeople at Harbourfront, whereas in St. John's, the public can interact one-on-one with the with craftspeople. So there's, there's a lot of learning to do, and with each new craftsperson that comes along, then that requires a, a specialized training program and specialized support. So it's, it's taking all a lot of energy from both the Craft Council and the Anna Templin Center because they're partners in this endeavor. And, uh, but that's the way of the future. It's definitely it's definitely true that any emerging craft business, just like any small business, needs a lot of support in the beginning years, and uh, and I think that's especially true of craftspeople. And the plantation is one way of providing that support. The number of professionally trained craftspeople is growing steadily. The number of people that are going through a professional training program like the textiles program at the college and then often going on to do a fine arts degree from NASCAD or OCAD in Ontario. NASCAD is the Nova Scotia College of Art and Design from the Alberta College of Art and Design. Um, That's grown too, so there are a lot more people that have professional training. And while uh, many craftspeople are still self-trained or community-taught, which is perfectly acceptable, um, you find that professionally trained craftspeople have the design skills that uh, community-trained people often do not and often have to scramble to, to get in, in, in amongst all the other things that they have to do because uh, community training often teaches technical skills, but not the design skills nor the business skills. And so that's a challenge, too, for many craftspeople who are creative souls and are not always interested in keeping the books. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for coming in, Anne, and, and uh, thanks for telling me about your, your impressive career at the Craft Council. Well, thank you, Joey. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope that the Craft Council has a long and healthy future. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Tara Barrett. 
We would love to know what you think of the show. Leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at HFNLCA. Thanks for listening.